Hello, and welcome to Dope Conversations Podcast. I am your host, Bikita Pegram, and I am going to give you something to think about. Welcome, 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 welcome to Dope Conversations, and I am so excited to be here. Well, you be here and I am here. We're both here. So I'm glad that you tuned in to Dope Conversations today. I have a special guest for you and I wanted to share her with you because I follow her on Twitter and she has some amazing tweets, very funny, great sense of humor, but she's brilliant. Yes, brilliant and funny. You can't buy that. And I looked at her tweets and I noticed that she was the executive director of the NYU Metro Center. And guess what? She's the first black woman to hold that position. Anybody in academia knows those positions are usually held by white men. So when you find a woman, check and a black woman, check. I was like, OK, I have to reach out to her. So I reached out to her. Yes, I slid into her DMs, <laughs> but I slid into her DMs on an academic level. <laughs> so she answered back and she is so she's what I thought she was going to be. And I had to share her with you. So I wanted to share her story with her. Her name is Fabian the set. I still said it wrong. Say it for me again. <laughs> That's okay. Fabian. Fabian. Yes, like fabulous. You're, I was just fabulous. about to say that. She's fabulous, Fabian. Ah, ah, there you go. See, now I can remember because you are fabulous. So that will be easy to connect. <laughs> Welcome to the show and thank you for being here. I want to jump in because I want to make sure I respect your time. We had some technical difficulties, y'all. Y'all know I'm very transparent. So I had to make sure that I wanted to hear every thing she was saying. So I went back and made sure our audio levels are great and they are now. So my first question for you is how did you get started in your career? What made you get into education? Okay. So when I was um, a wee little girl growing up in Haiti, um, I, um, you know, didn't imagine that I would end up being an, a university professor, but um I had, when I moved to the U.S. at the age of 10, a black woman as my pediatrician who was right up the street, and I just thought she was so dope, and all of my doctors when I was growing up were also black people, and so I just thought, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be a doctor. I love kids. I want to be a pediatrician, just like yeah. her, and, um, but when I got to college and majored in biology and took uh, you know good old chemistry... <laughs> Um, I was like, um, when do we get to talk about the kids though? Um, I, I, I'm not really sure this is what I want to do. So you so, didn't even make it to the uh, physics part. You were just listen, like, wait a minute. I said, when we start talking about the kids, why are we talking about all this other stuff? Right. So, um, I was lucky enough. I mean, really, really, truly blessed enough, um, to have some supporters at the, at my college. Um, because I, at a, you know, I kind of had a little bit of a crisis, right? You know, you're young and you're yeah. thinking like, what am I going to do with myself? I thought I had this idea, but my, um, Dean of students sat down with me and she was like, well, what are you actually interested in? Like, what are you, you know, and it sort of boiled down to, well, I'm really interested in, I want to understand child development, basically okay. you know, what it boiled down to child development. children. Right. And so she was like, well, guess what? You can actually do that. There is a field, um, to study that. 
So I ended up in undergrad, um, basically forming my own major. It was at the time there was a major called behavioral science, which was very open ended and allowed me to essentially construct a major in child development and family studies. Oh, that's cool. It was awesome. And I was able to take classes at Messiah where I was in school and also at Temple University to round it out and take classes on black families and black child development. And that was just amazing. So then it really allowed me to figure out early on that I did want to pursue an academic path. Um, I also had the opportunity to be a research assistant for one of my professors um, in college and undergrad um, at Messiah. And I thought that was a really cool experience. I hung out in the library all the time. I was there all the time anyway. (laughs) And I actually enjoyed pushing around the big carts of books. And so it was sort of like, (laughs) all right, well, I guess I found my... I found my calling um, and I just really knew that I wanted to be able to mentor people the way that I had been mentored. You know, it was just such a, such a blessing to have people pouring into me in that way. And I just really wanted to carry that forward. So fast forward, what do I need to do? Okay. You got to go to grad school. Cool. Mm -hmm. Go to grad school. And um, started out thinking, believe it or not, that I wanted to study um, discipline in black families. Okay. And that was cool. So I started, I I found the professor who was going to, you know, help me support, support that work. Yeah. And then um, first year of graduate school and a few months in, she announces that she is leaving the university. Oh, and And she probably was the only one that studied that. Right. Wow. And she, she was, she was the only black woman at that time in that department. And so I don't even know what her experiences were like, because at that point I was still too young and naive to really understand, know the way that academia works and to know the way that those departments can really wear you down. But I had another one of those crises where I was like, oh my gosh, I thought I, I knew what I was, you know, getting into and now I don't. And, um, so people were like, don't worry, we'll find you another advisor. But I was like, what, you know, what are they going to study? And they said, there's this guy named John Tudge and he's on leave right now. He's on sabbatical, but you're going to really like him. And we think you're going to, you know, get along. I said, all right, sure. You know, right. So John comes back from his leave and, and we do hit it off. And he's doing his, he he has a big project at the time that he's doing the cultural ecology of young children. Mm. And it's studying how children through everyday interactions learn to be a part of their communities. That's good. And I was like, okay, I'll go with this. Right. You know, that's okay. And it's for my master's thesis. And, you know, maybe I'll do something else for my dissertation, but you know, I'm okay with this. Right. So um, the study had been conducted in, in Russia, Estonia, Finland, um, in, in Kenya with the Luo and um, in Brazil. And so it it was, it was this international study and in, in uh, Greensboro where we were in in North Carolina, we were studying African-American families. And so I thought, all right, this is cool. Let me just, I, I'm, I'm, it's still getting me into the African-American families piece of it. So let, let's right. do that. Well, you know, in doing that project where we would um, put a mic onto a three-year-old and just follow them in their everyday activities and just listen to them. And take I know notes. you I were mean, tired following a three-year-old. <laughs> you know I was. 
you know that by the end of the day, I was like, oh my gosh. And you know, some of them are a little bit older. And I don't know if you've ever met a four-year-old, but four-year-olds never stop yes, talking. Yes, yes. So between the threes running around and the fours never stop talking, let me tell you, um, at the end of those days, I was pooped. Look, did but you ever become a mother was, after that? I did. You know what? <laughs> Believe it or not. Okay, this is why I'm telling you. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, after that experience, was that like, uh, no, I pass. Hilarious. Hilar- you know, I had, and I had been also, I should say, um, in college, I had worked in early childhood classrooms as okay. well um, as an assistant teacher. So I had that early childhood, you know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I really, I really didn't know that education was like my field, you know? Right. So anyway, so I do that project for my master's thesis and um, I start reading and thinking and exploring and, and all kinds of stuff and, and uh, thinking about education, you know, in cl- taking classes in grad school and reading yeah. all kinds of stuff and reading about education and um, decide that for my dissertation, I actually want to follow those same kids because now they're about to transition into, into kindergarten. Oh, okay. And I was like, oh, wow, like transitions are a really important and, and, and neat and, and like critical opportunity yeah. to really understand development. So let yeah. me try to understand what's happening in this transition. Mm-hmm. So I get to reading about education, transition, kindergarten, whatever. I go to some schools in the area and I'm gathering pamphlets and all the pamphlets are talking about how parents need to get ready for school. And parents need to be ready for school and get their kids ready for school. Right. But I'm not seeing any pamphlets talking about how schools need to be ready for kids mm. or families. And that's right good. away, I was like, that's something's missing here because, yeah. you know, our schools are predominantly taught by white teachers. Mm-hmm. And I'm focusing right now on African-American students. I know that most of the kids that I'm, you know, that I'm observing and working with are about to step into schools right. where most of their teachers are going to be white. So right. are those teachers and are those schools actually ready for them that's, more so than them being ready for school? That's a good question because we right? don't think about that. You know, yeah. there are, cause even being on the other side of the wall, mm-hmm. when you're tra- doing your PDs in the summer, it's mm-hmm. not about getting ready for the students. It's right. about more so pedagogy and making sure your classroom environment is welcoming, but it's not really delving into what that student might bring with them. Exactly. Exactly. So I started to um, develop the idea of, you know, what, what was the dissertation actually going to look Mm -hmm. like and what was it going to be? And, you know, basically long story short, I landed on, wanting to hear from African-American parents themselves what they think is needed for children to be ready for school. More so than what schools think is ready, you know, is needed to get children ready for school. I wanted to know what are these parents thinking? How are they preparing their kids? And what are, what are their definitions of readiness? Right? Because there's all this rhetoric about readiness, Mm -hmm. but what is that rhetoric rooted in? And is it taking into account the perspectives of, different families and and different communities. So, um, so that was my dissertation project and, and, and has since developed into one of my major focus areas in my research program is the family school relationship. So it's still in the, in that same vein of sort of like, 
What are schools expecting? Schools' expectations tend to be very school centric, mm-hmm. tend to be very deficit based. Yes. But you know, I'm I'm working with African American families. I'm working with Latinx families. I'm working with Haitian immigrant families, and everybody is education is number one on the top of their list. But the rhetoric and the popular uh, you know um, discourse is these parents don't care about education. And we need to basically teach them how to care about education. So yeah. really contradicting, you know, um, what I thought. So I would say what I what I say a lot of times when I'm talking to students about why I chose education, why I've chosen education research, I say I'm interested in power mm-hmm. and how power structures society and institutions and how... Um, the different, like, so, so the, the hegemonic dominant ideas, um, that, that sort of take over like white supremacy, colonialism, imperialism, um, you know, heteropatriarchy, all these, you know, these hegemonic ideas that really dominate our society. How, how did, how did that, and why is it still happening? What, you know, really just trying to understand as a fascination and that education is sort of the stage where I'm watching that play out and trying to understand how does that play out in this particular field? Because really, if you think about it, education and schools are just a reflection of our society. Yes, I say that all the time. I said, you see in schools what you see in your environment. If you have a problem with the school, check the neighborhood. Yes, yes. 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 So those dynamics, those power dynamics, those struggles, those, um, you know, deficit lenses on anybody who doesn't fit that model of the white heteropatriarch, you know, um, you know, what, like, how does that show up? And it absolutely does show up in classrooms. So I would say I came to education research because I feel passionate about young people. I feel passionate about families and communities. I think education is extremely important and important to all of the communities that I, you know, have the honor uh, to to have the have had the opportunity to work with and then I'll work with in the future it's central yeah. and it is foundational it you is. know to really our society um, and so it's it's just the, it's the stage that I've chosen to study how these things play out That's and it. I'm trying to understand you know how can I interrupt and how can I disrupt and how can I resist alongside um, with with the people who are fighting every day. Um, you know, on this particular stage. And see, and that's why I call educators change agents. It is very hard to be an educator and not be a change agent because educators, we identify those things that may not be going right for one student or several students or a group of students. So when you look at that, you have to differentiate your classroom you have to make sure you meet the child where they are so that you can educate them if Mm -hmm. little johnny doesn't know what a teacup is because we don't drink out of that we just use a cup for everything you may have to explain that so you have to break down barriers like you were saying and we have to fight against deficit thinking when we are talking about black children and black education and black institutes. And I say that because I'm a lover of HBCUs, but um, my dissertation 
centers around HBCUs and that deficit model of our low retention rates are a big factor of why we're not successful. But they're not looking at we take on a lot of students that they would not take. That's right. Absolutely. So that, well, I want to ask a question about your dissertation. So I'm curious, what were some of the things that parents said, parents said in your surveys about what do kids need when they go to school? Mm-hmm. So they talked about their kids being ready for the world, mm-hmm. like um, being able to physically take care, be safe, right? right. So like really understanding those things. Um, being able to um, know certain academic things, of course. Um, They were also very aware of that need for basic literacy and basic numerical awareness and that sort of thing. Um, But they also talked about the importance of um, their kids understanding racial dynamics and understanding, um, you know, that out in the world, uh, people are going to see them differently And I did see, you know, in the literature on racial socialization, you know, there are different types of racial socialization. I did see different types among the parents. So it's not that they all had a monolithic message. And I actually have a a paper about that. But that was something that was, you know, we we do need to talk about race. And so I want them to be prepared to, you know, to talk about race and to understand how race works in the world based on my own beliefs of of how that works. Um, They also wanted... um, schools and teachers to see them as partners Mm. and to um, really have that back and forth that, you know what I'm saying? Like there was um, one of the, one of the parent, one of the dads was like, you know, I want them to know I'm watching you, you know, and it's (laughs) like, that's exactly right. I've got my eye on you, but you know, also in the positive, I'm, I'm here to be your partner as well. Right. So, you yeah. know, I'm not, I, it's not like I've got my eye on you and I'm trying to look out for, you know, every time you make a mistake or whatever. No, it's not in that sense. In the sense of, I want you to know that I'm aware. I want you to yeah. know that I'm, you know, paying attention. And I want you to know that I'm here and that you can come and, you know, come to me. My mom used to say that all the time. Um, raising us, she says she was involved because she needed the teacher to know that we had parents. And that yes. we weren't just arriving at school on our own. And I didn't yes. really understand that until, because, until I became a parent. And especially when I became a teacher. Mm-hmm. In the classroom, you would see the different type of teachers and how they treated students based on their own biases and belief oh, systems. Yes. And when those parents would come and defend their kid, oh, now they're interacting differently because, oh, now you realize they do have support at home and it's not what you thought just because you see little Johnny and then you see little Tyrone you think little Johnny has two parents but you think little Tyrone is at home on Xbox all day while parents are gone but then when you realize oh the story is a little different it might be switched then their their treatment of those students is a lot different yeah so yeah sometimes they do need to know yeah we are partners and I am watching you on both levels to right. make sure that my child is getting equitable education, but also to let you know that I'm here to support you at home. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that brings me into my next question. What challenges, because, you know, there's challenges on in everything. So what yeah. challenges have you faced that did not prepare you for, that you were not prepared for, rather? You said, okay, wait a minute. I didn't think that was going to happen. And mm-hmm. how'd you get through it? 
<laughs> well, one of the things was um, in college um, getting, I think it was like a B or something that I got on a paper or a test or something. And so I went to the professor and I said, hey, so, you know, I would like to know how I can improve and, you know, whatever for next time. And, and this woman actually looked me in my face and said, but you're a B student. What? Like, this is good for you. You're, and I was like. So be appreciative. Right. Right. <laughs> wow. Like, basically, there's not really anything you can do because this is this is your level of achievement. And, um, wow. you know, I was stunned. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm like, I don't even know how to follow up with that. What is that? <laughs> I was like. Wow. And so I, I said, you know, in the moment, I was like, actually, I'm an A student. And. I, that's why I'm asking you how I can get an A in this class. And I don't even remember, you know, whatever happened after response. that. But um, I, that was just a fuel for me, you know, to say, like, you don't, you don't get to decide what kind Who of student I am. I, am. Yeah. I get to decide that. And if I'm going to, you know, party or do whatever and not focus on my work, then that's one thing. But you're not going to get to tell me you know, who I am. I already know who I am. See, those are those biases that I was just talking about. So I'm not sure how she got to that assumption because that's an assumption Mm -hmm. that you are just a B student. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. so, because it sounds like that may have been one of the first few assignments that you had in that classroom. So how do you just assume that that's where you level off? And as an educator, why is it okay for you to decide it's not okay to pour into a student to make sure they reach the top Precisely. level? Because say I was a B student. So what? Yeah. Does that mean that I don't deserve an opportunity to get better or a C or a D student for that matter? Whatever it is, if you're an educator, then your job and your role and your desire should be for me to do, you know, to, to reach as high as I can. Right. So it just, it, it didn't make sense on any level whatsoever. You know, the racism obviously was a huge piece of it, yeah. but even like, even if you step back and just think, my goodness, like if you're an educator, can you imagine that coming out of your mouth? Man. Somebody actually says, I want to improve. And you say to them, no, you cannot improve. That is crazy. And I'm thinking about, I've had that question. I mean, mm-hmm. any educators had that question when you give an assignment and a student may not get exactly what they sought out to get. Mm-hmm. They may ask you, okay, how do I improve? Even if it right. is a B. It right. doesn't always have to be an F because you have some students that a B is an F. <laughs> right. Hello. So, Hi, right. hello. Please, you're speaking about me. Thank you so much. <laughs> right. So they don't know the anxiety that a higher right. achiever gets when they get a B. So, yes, that is a normal question. And it's not an above and a beyond question. It's a normal question. How can I improve? Right. And right. that that warrants a conversation with some legitimate feedback. Okay, so when I was looking at your paper, this is what I saw, A, B, C, D. Exactly. But, wow. Now, see, yeah. and what's so sad, that still goes on today. It still goes on today. I wish that I could say, you know, that I was the last generation of people that that's happened to, but it is not. Yeah. It really isn't. That, yeah. yeah. Wow. It really isn't. So, so yeah, that's, that's just one, one little story of an example of something that just really caught me off guard. And, but the way that I responded to it was to just say, oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll see. 
<laughs> we'll see about that, these students. Uh oh. <laughs> and see, and that's the thing. And I, not even without knowing your whole background, I can safely say, as an overachiever, she does not know that was just the match to make you secede that whole exactly. entire semester. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And she also didn't know, you know, I mean, and, and to be, you know, fully transparent and honest, like, there were so many times, including that time, that I did doubt myself and that I called my mom crying right. and being like, you know, like maybe I should just come home. And every time my mother would be like, I don't know who you have called, but you have the wrong number if you're talking about quitting school. Come on, mama. <laughs> I know you're not talking to me, <laughs> you know, about this. But she, you know, she, and, and very lovingly and, and you know, would just say, like, I get it. You know, it, yes, it hurts and it's tough and it's hard and and um, and it, and sometimes it doesn't seem like you can do it. You know, I remember calling her in grad school, first couple of weeks of grad school, being like, everybody is smarter than me. And she said, guess what, girl? Everybody's thinking the same thing about you. And that's the good news. Yeah. So don't worry about it. Everybody's thinking everybody's smarter than me. Every yes. single person is thinking that same thing. And you're absolutely so don't right. Even, mm-hmm, don't even stress about it. Yep. I um, remember I was teaching um, um, a GT class. Mm-hmm. And on the first day of class, I always like to ask the GT students, how many of y'all are here because you want to be here? Nobody mm-hmm. raises their hand. I said, how wow. many of you are here because your parents put you in this class? Everybody raises their hand. Wow. I said, how many of you think you're not smart enough to be here? Half mm-hmm. the class raises mm-hmm. their hand. The other half is just scared to raise it. Right. And I said, how many of you want to show that you're smart enough? And then it just kind of sat there. And it was a way to let them see you're not the only one that does not think you don't deserve to be here. And that was before I knew about um, imposter syndrome. But Mm -hmm. imposter syndrome does not just impact college students. No. It starts early. It starts very, very early. And I was teaching seventh grade and they were feeling that way. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if you if you read, there was a piece that came out, I think a couple of years ago called Stop Telling Women They Have Imposter Syndrome. And the gist of it is basically that our institutions are set up for women to fail. Right. Mm. Um, it, it was like coming from a business perspective. It was like, you know, so you set things up for women to, to not succeed. And then suddenly, you know, women are like, how can I not, you know, I'm, I'm right. not doing a great job. So it basically is, is uh, flipping it and saying, um, it's about the institution. So when you said just now, it doesn't just start in, in college, it starts earlier on. Absolutely. Because our educational institutions from day one are set up yep. for our young people, black and brown young people to, yep. to feel as though they are inadequate. Yep. They are not inadequate. The system is inadequate. We have not set up schools that deserve them, but we make them believe that they need to deserve. Uh-uh. Yeah. And you know? that, that reminds me of um, Dr. Steele's stereotype threat. That is mm-hmm. real. When oh, I read absolutely. his book, I said, students can feel that very early on that I don't want to fail because I'm going to let down my whole entire race. The amount absolutely. of weight that little black girls take on into school, little brown girls, little black, black boys, brown boys take into school is hard. It's heavy. It is. It is heavy. Absolutely. It absolutely is. So it goes back to, like you said, you know, as an educator, we have a responsibility to let them know that they can succeed. And if they don't know, show them. Yes. And my husband always says everybody needs a win. So you may give them an assignment 
that's very simple in nature, just to build that self-esteem in academics. Yes. They have it in sports. They have it in fashion. They have it in looks. But we may have to do those same things for academics. And I think that's um, something that needs to be talking about. When you talked about your dissertation, things that school needs to do, schools need to do for kids, we need to learn how to build their self-esteem in academics. Mm Mm-hmm. 100%. That's good. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So last but not least, what is some of the research that you're working on right now? What is your research about? Okay, so I mentioned that um, one of the major areas of my research is um, family school relationships, you know, the, the relationship between uh, parents and, and other kinds of um, parental figures, adult figures who care for children and, and their teachers. So that is... Um, I'm, I'm working on a book. I've been working on a book for 498 years on that. Um, it it's going to be, be a great book. You know, maybe my grandchildren will read it, and that would be fantastic. Maybe it'll come out with like <laughs> Or you could be like Adam B. Be- Wells and just have her granddaughter complete it. There you go. You, you know what? At this pace, okay? At this pace, let me tell you, this is, this is the direction we're headed in. No, but seriously. Um, so that book is... Um, kind of like reflecting on the research that I have previously done. Mm-hmm. And um, it's meant to be a book for educators on, on how to build authentic relationships. Oh, that's good. Um, Cause it's important. You know, so, yeah. My, you know, my, my premise is that, um, is that teachers and, and parents like we're, we're operating under, not authentic Mm -hmm. as like human authentic interactions, but really as like roles. Mm -hmm. So this is how a teacher is supposed to behave and this is how a parent is supposed to behave. And we have these expectations that are tied up in those roles. And if we can release those things and just relate to people on a human level and as, you know, really just like person to person, you know, I think it can make a big difference. Um, But in terms of a research project, I'm lucky enough to be a co-PI on a project led by my dear colleague, Joanna Geller, where we are studying um, parent advocacy groups and how those parent advocacy and organizing groups um, have, or I guess we're looking at um, intergenerationally. What does it mean for young people when their parents are part of these advocacy groups that are advocating for them for, uh, around education and other that's issues? It. So that's a really neat project. Yes, um, we are. We did first like a national scan of different organizations around the country, trying to get a sense of what are their areas of focus, what do they do, and then we're going to be doing um, these um, these um, case studies of specific ones. So we're in the process of identifying which of the organizations you want to do deeper dives onto. So that's that one area. Um, Another area, a major area of my work is on around classrooms and creating classrooms that are culturally sustaining and, um, and humanizing for young people. And that, you know, with, with everything, it's sort of like, it has different offshoots. So one offshoot of that is this other project that I'm on, um, as a co-PI with Vanessa Rodriguez as the lead PI. And that project is, we are, we are studying the experiences of, of um, Black and Latina um, teachers, women Latina teachers, mm-hmm. early childhood, pre-K teachers, okay. and trying to understand their own journeys as educators and their own processing of the experiences that they've had 
with um, as students and then also as educators around racism in order to really push for anti-racist um, curriculum, anti-racist practices, anti-racist supports for these teachers. And um, in, a, in a related, not so much related around the teacher piece per se, but in related in terms of like thinking about classrooms and what kinds of classrooms we want our kids, we want for our kids. Um, I'm part of this other project. Um, The PI is Allison Henward and I'm um, with it. You know, we have a team for all these projects. It's all these wonderful teams that I'm a part of, and I'm just honored to be on these teams. And that project is looking at police play in Um. pre-K classrooms so the curricula around, you know, in early childhood, the, the, the curricula around um, police is around community helpers. Right. So we are interested in how teachers make sense of a scene. There's a, this, pro, this process that we're using is uh, video cued ethnography. Okay. So you show a video clip to a focus group of people, and then you just have them talk about it. And okay. that's the prompt for the, um, for, the, for the data that you're gathering. So uh, we're doing... Um, focus group with teachers, teacher educators, hopefully along down the line, actually police officers. But the idea is that they watch the scene and then we just kind of gather like, what are they thinking? And and down the line, our objective is to create a curriculum for early educators around how to address these issues um, of, of police, of, um, um, what are they called? The border patrol, you know, because different communities, right. So, and, and we're doing it in different communities in order to capture all of that, uh, because we know that where there are children, there is gunplay. Where there are children, there is play of you know police and yeah. jail and all that kind of stuff. And we really want early childhood educators to feel equipped and solid in how they can approach those conversations with young folks. That's good, um, and that's yeah, it's it necessary really because. The kids see the community support on campus and they, I'm sorry, community support doesn't sound like a police officer with a gun walking around to me, <laughs> but the, was, I think they call them, some schools call them support officers. Yeah, safety officers. Yeah, they have all kinds of names and I think yeah. you do have to talk about it. You can't just yeah. put this person into a campus and not really talk about it and talk right. about what's going on for students because now you have students seeing the very people on the news killing black and brown people in their schools. Mm -hmm. You got to understand there's going to be a level of fear because if I just saw George Floyd's clip with Mm -hmm. three police officers involved in this man's murder and now this man is not this man, but this uniform Mm -hmm. is in my school Mm-hmm. I'm a little bit, I'm a little anxious. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, it used to be before pre-K, UPK and, and pre-K kids really being in schools, like in with K-12, you know, with other kids that they didn't necessarily have. They were in preschools and they were in settings where maybe they didn't see that. But nowadays you really can't take that. We have 3K, right? We have children as young as three years old entering into K-12 or, you know, K-5, whatever, school buildings where there are these quote-unquote safety officers and people. And so, yeah, it's a really important conversation. And I I love that project. Um, And then the last one that's a current active project is on summer learning. Okay. So that one is a neat project um, funded by the Wallace Foundation. Um, The PIs, we have Joanna Geller as well as Elise Wilkerson. Mm -hmm. And that project is, um, it's, it's it's a really interesting thing because rather than us coming up with the question, 
the, the Wellness Foundation has funded um, this organization to create a, it's called the District Summer Learning Network. Okay. And so it's a bunch of different districts all around the country generating um, summer learning programs around certain principles, centering equity. You know, there are certain sort of like pillars. Mm-hmm. And, then, and, th- and then, of course, they're also adapting it to their local setting and their local needs. And we're basically studying that development. Like, what is it, you know, how, how are these networks evolving? What is it looking like? How are they implementing? And so forth. So, oh, um, yeah, excited to be part of these amazing, amazing projects. And I don't know, y'all, after hearing everything that she's doing, I don't know how someone would not think that you were a change agent. That has change agent all over it. I know people sometimes have this stereotypical view of activism and everybody knows that listens to the show. I always say, and I'm going to say it again, education is activism and you have to look at different levels of activism to are important to make the movement move. And I think yours is very much important because I do too think education is necessary for us to close the wealth gap. Is it necessary for us to beat some of the barriers that we face in society? Um, it's, it's important. It's the foundation. It's the bedrock of what we need to do to improve as a society. You have to educate yourself and those around you and you are doing the good work. <laughs> so thank well. you. I really appreciate you saying that. And and I have to say, you know, of course, it's hard for us to see it in ourselves. But when I see the work of my colleagues at the Metro Center, so just just for folks who don't know them, it's the NYU Metropolitan Center for Research on Equity and the Transformation of Schools which is, you know, like no pressure or anything, you know, just just go transform the school. But genuinely, um, the center is a collective and we have multiple subunits within the center that do all kinds of incredible, marvelous work from research all the way to direct services in schools, you know, providing um, professional development, doing district audit, equity audits, all kinds of incredible work. And when I see my colleagues, you know, that I have been lucky enough to, to join in the center, I am just awed and just blown away all the time by their dopeness and the amazing work that they do. So when you say that educators are change agents, I'm like, well, all I have to do is look to the left and the right of me (laughs) to know that you are absolutely right. Even if I don't always see it in myself, but you know, my, my colleagues um, at Metro are just like, just phenomenal and wonderful. And I just feel so blessed to be able to, you know, be partnering with um, these incredible folks and supporting them really kind of like, I feel like my job as executive director is just sort of like provide the environment and the, and the tools for, for people to get out there and do what you're like the facilitator. (laughs) That's how I see it. But I I think you're doing a great job of facilitating, but you're also doing the work and I appreciate the inspiration that I get from watching you do those things. So Thank Thank you. you I really, really appreciate that. I think now would be a good time to jump in and talk about some things that mom and dad and aunties and grandmas can do in their neighborhoods to help with education for your kids or your grandkids. Guardians, we need you as well. So one thing is be active. My mom um, said that showing up 
shows that you are present and involved in your kid's life. And I think that's important in the classroom as well. Parent teacher day on fish camp on get your schedule day show up on those days that when you can take a lunch with your kid show up it doesn't always have to be an interaction with the teacher when they see you involved in your kid's life I promise you teachers take note of that and your kid gets a little bit extra attention in the classroom because they know they can't afford a phone call an email a text from you (laughs) so be involved two ignore the biases it is what it is unfortunately no matter how much we've been fighting and we've been fighting for biases to stop they're still there so what we have to do is ignore it and keep moving but you don't ignore it and let it stay the same ignore it and make some noise (laughs) because Ida B. Wells has a famous quote that I love today um, to death that you have to shine a light on the problem, those things will go away once the light is shine on it, shined on it. So if we just keep ignoring it and not doing anything, the next generation and the next generation will still have to deal with those things. But if we make a post, make a tweet, and the last thing is go to a school board meeting and make some noise, that is where we can start making some change at levels that you're comfortable with. Sometimes just having a face at the school board meeting will curve some conversations that they're scared to have in front of your face that they may be having behind your back, but they won't have it in front of your face. So I had the opportunity as a parent to go to a school board meeting and my eyes was open. You see and hear some things at these meetings that you would be surprised at. You will see and hear some things about the amount of money that is coming into your school district that you will be surprised at. And you will see and see things here and see things about relining school districts so that money is allocated in certain ways that you'll be surprised at. But you won't know unless you go to these meetings. We have to start showing up at PTAs, but we also have to start showing up at these board meetings. They are publicized on all school districts websites. But the time you do not have to be. Um, some big aficionado or you don't have to be an educator you don't have to be anybody but you to go to these meetings and they have committees that they let parents serve on as a accountability piece get involved so those are my three things be active don't ignore the bias and get involved in the board because that's where things change you never know you might find your passion you might run for school board and we might vote for you. (laughs) So please go out and be active. Thank you so much, Fabian. Yay! And y'all are doing my happy dance. (laughs) I love that happy dance. Thank you. I enjoyed this so much. Y'all, if you have not gotten her social media, Fabian, can you please tell them your social media to follow you on, please? Yes. So I am everywhere on social media at, um, (laughs) so we started talking about my silly tweets. I am, I am a fun and silly person. And um, before I, well, yeah, pretty much before I was anything else, I was a dancer. So my Twitter handle is at Baila Bomba, B-A-I-L-A-B-O-M-B-A. Because when Twitter was just coming out, and I didn't know that it would be something I'd be using associated with my work, (laughs) I just wanted to have fun with it. And Latin dance is one of the many different kinds of dances that I do and that I love. So that's my social media handle. 
Yes, ma'am. And I, you know, I like over the years, people have been like, have you thought about changing it? And I'm like, you know, I could change it, but also part of it is like humanizing me. Yes. And I was just about to say that. No, keep it because I think it fits you. It fits your personality. You're not a stuffy professor mm-hmm. at all. Please nope. keep that energy. Let yeah. let them see that about you because that's what yeah. drew me to your page. Oh, like, well, yes, you. you. I was sitting there like, wow, she's like really funny. Well, <laughs> thank you. Now people are going to be coming on there like she ain't that. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> Bikini, you said she was funny. She's exactly. not that funny. Not, oh, look. I've been following her for four days. I haven't seen a joke. <laughs> oh look, oh, they'll say Bikini's cool. She thinks everything's <laughs> funny. <laughs> either way. Oh, either way. Follow her so you can get educated and get some laughs. I think Thank it's important. You. And while you're following her, follow me. <laughs> I'm on everything at Bikita Pegram. So Instagram, Twitter, all that. Follow Bikita Pegram. And I will put her social media tag in the description of the podcast. So once you leave your five stars, yes. I want you to leave a rating. Please go ahead and follow her. And we thank you for showing up today. And we are going to see you next week. Well, excuse me, not next week. Next month, I have Dr. Joy Avery. I met her at a conference and Black Girl Magic. She passed her um, defense, dissertation defense and social. She is a doctor now in education. And I want to bring her on and talk about why is it important for us to get doctorates? Aren't there enough doctors? Or are there enough doctors? And we're going to talk about that black and educated, but at a doctorate level, you know. So we're going to bring her on and think about those things that we can do to get us a seat at the table and create our own tables. So once again, thank you for coming out. I want to thank everybody for tuning in. Tune in next month when we talk to Joy Avery. And you all have a blessed and cool summer. Bikita out.